Thanks for being here. Welcome to Bayou City Fellowship. You want to grab your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 6. We are in the middle of a series for seven weeks where we are trying to unlearn and relearn how to pray. We're unlearning prayer because I, I fear many of us, myself included, have fallen into some powerless habits of prayer. Maybe you do pray, but you're not seeing the, the fruit of that prayer. You're not really experiencing the answer to those prayers. And it may be because we've picked up some things that are just not all that helpful in prayer. And so we're trying to unlearn some things and we are trying to relearn how to pray. And most of all, what we're doing in these seven weeks is not teaching, although that's what we're doing. Hopefully most of what we're doing in these seven weeks is we're actually praying. And so if you are not seeing an uptick in the amount of time and and quality of time that you are spending in prayer, then uh, I don't even know why we would be doing this series because it doesn't help all that much to learn a lot about prayer if we don't actually Pray And so to, to lead us in that, what we are all doing, and hopefully you are jumping in with us, is we are all adding an hour a week to however much time we spent in prayer during these seven weeks. So if you pray five minutes a week on average, maybe you're asking for a parking spot or you know a discount at some restaurant or whatever it is, then keep doing those things by all means, but then add an extra hour onto the week of prayer. If you're praying two hours, then you know, take it up to three. If you're praying three hours, then you know, four hours during these seven weeks. Because what we, I, I think, see from the scripture is what you sow into prayer, you will build on for the weeks and months and years to come. You know, you, usually prayer is the trailblazer of the work of God. You know, rarely does God come and do amazing things in our lives when there has been no prayer. So if you want God to break into your life, if you want to see Him working, then you need to pray. And so that extra hour should not be a burden to you. It should be a joy to you. And, you know, again, nothing infuses our faith like answered prayer. And you will see answered prayer as you pray and as we learn about prayer. So Matthew chapter 6, we're using the Lord's Prayer as our guide in these days. So I just had you sit down, but I'm actually going to ask you to stand up again as we say the Lord's Prayer together. Our students are learning it, our teenagers, our our kids are learning this. You should have gotten a piece of paper when you left a kids ministry last week that had the Lord's Prayer on it. So they're leaning over uh, into the uh, as well uh, over there. So, uh, so let's do this as a, a family uh, together today. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now don't sit down yet. I want to do it one more time, but as we do it, I want you to think about the millions of people throughout history that have prayed that prayer. We're not just praying this today as Bayou City Fellowship. We're not just praying it today as a part of the family of God on planet Earth. In this moment, we are partnered up generation after generation after generation. You want to go all the way back to the beginning to a mountain in Galilee where a crowd has gathered around Jesus. His disciples have been asking and wondering, when are you going to teach us to pray like John the Baptist taught his disciples to pray? And Jesus actually sits down. You're among the crowd and he begins to say these words. 
So we're partnered up today with Jesus. We're partnered up today with the disciples. We're partnered up today with the first church. We're partnered up with every church from that first day until now. So let's pray it again. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. You can have a seat. So we started with our Father. And what we learned two weeks ago is that when we come to prayer, we don't come as peasants. We don't come as slaves. We don't come as servants. We can come to God in prayer as sons and, and as daughters. And God loves to hear your prayer. He enjoys hearing your prayer. Your prayer is a, a sweet a fragrance to Him. He always wants to hear your voice because He is your Father. And when you pray, you're not praying to a deity. You're praying to your Father. And then last week, we saw that our Father has a name that is holy. And those two things don't normally go together, or at least we would not put those things side by side. Uh, The Father part, that feels warm, that feels fuzzy, that feels good, that feels nice, that's comforting. The holy part feels a little cold, but Jesus gives them to us both together that our Father is our Father, and, and all His pleasure is with us. And He has delighted in His children this week. I don't know what your week was like. Maybe you were totally righteous or maybe there was some unrighteousness thrown into the mix. Either way, God was happy to call you son. He was happy to call you daughter. He is our father and we want to come to prayer with a full knowledge of who our father is and our father is holy. And he invites us into that holiness when we pray. And not only does he invite us into that holiness, he makes us holy. So when we pray, it's not... A holy God listening to the prayer of an unholy sinner. No, it's a holy God who has made an unholy sinner's holy ones. Prayer is the holy one and holy ones coming together and having a conversation. And that's why prayer is different than all other conversations you had this week. I'm sure you had a thousand different conversations, but if you prayed, that conversation was different. It was unique. It was uncommon. It was removed from the rest and set apart because our Father is holy. And this is what he says in verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You ever met anybody who is been bored at church? Just raise your hand. If you, maybe you've been bored at church. Yeah, you've probably been bored at this church. I see it on your faces sometimes. <laughs> you know, sometimes that's my fault, and I think sometimes it's your fault. But, you know, all of us have been bored at church, and, and all of us, uh, you don't know very many pastors who just admit that, that I bore you. I get it. I, I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable. Um, and all of us know somebody, and maybe this has been your story, that had a personal revival of faith, you know, like Maybe they started coming back to church for the first time in a long time or started reading the Bible or they went to something and came back. They're just like a, just on fire on the inside and it's just oozing out of them everywhere. And, and they weren't active at all in any kind of thing of faith, but now they're more active than you and you're starting to feel kind of self-conscious about it because you were the one who was here. And, and now they're talking about Jesus more than you. And 
it's great for a couple of months, but then after a few months, they kind of slide back into their old way of living. You know people like that, just a shake of hands, and, and I've been that person, and maybe you've been that person too. Um, and, and then we're, we're stuck at church. Either you're stuck here and bored, or you just stop coming all together. And listen, the church has not helped in that either, because primarily the church presents some boring ideas. You know, for most of my life, if I could summarize everything I've learned at church, it is be saved and be good. That's mostly what most of us have picked up at church. Be saved, be born again. Jesus came to earth, died on the cross so that you could have forgiveness of sins. He ascended up into heaven. One day we return. In order to get to heaven, you need to believe in Jesus. So be saved. And that's very much an important part. Be saved. And then after that, it's be good. And we put a lot of different words around be good. But if you boil all of it down, that's the two primary messages of the church. Be saved and be good. Now listen, we like the be saved part. You can only get that here. You can only get that at church. But then after we are saved, after we become Christians, after we become followers of Jesus, the be good part, listen, you can get that anywhere. And if you're anything like me, after a while I get tired of people telling me what to do. So it's no wonder that many of us and many people that you know are bored with church when they think that is all that we are putting on the table. Be saved and be good. But when you read Jesus, he says a, lo- a lot of things. And what you, you understand when you read Jesus in the Gospels is he came to do more than just save your soul from hell. He did come to do that. And you can only be saved through him. But he came to bring you a new place to live. And we call that new place to live the kingdom of God. And that's what he's praying in his prayer would come. When I was in college, I've I've told you before that Amanda and I dated long distance. And so when I would come to visit her from Missouri, my motherland, down here to Texas, the promised land, (laughs) I needed a place to stay, you know. And so um, I didn't like sleeping in my car. Thankfully, she had an older friend who was just a few years older than, than us, was married. And her husband was going to graduate school at the same university that Amanda was going to. And they had a guest bedroom in their house. And they say, you know, we'll come, he can come and stay with us. Because listen, if you're single and you're dating, you need someone um, committed to your purity besides you. And thankfully, they were. Moms and dads, you need to be committed to your children's purity as committed, if not more committed, than they are. And thankfully, this great couple was committed to our purity, praise God. And so I got to sleep in their guest bedroom. Uh, their guest bedroom was all decorated really, really nice. It had a bunch of pillows on the, the bed, and that's how you know when you're in someplace swanky, is it got, is, it has, it has a lot of pillows on the bed. It was kind of like a Texas antique theme. That's how I would describe it. A lot of Texas stuff, a lot of antique antique looking old stuff and and it was just, it was very beautifully decorated and especially compared to where I was living I was living in a dorm room with another man and we had like this real like male musk you know what I'm talking about ladies you know what I'm talking about like men just smell it's not that they smell bad they just got a real distinct nastiness to them and I was in college so you amplify it living with another dude in a very small confined space you can imagine what it was like we didn't have any kind of matching furniture we didn't have anything hanging on the wall it was concrete walls beds a desk and 
nastiness. That's what it was. So when I come into their immaculately decorated guest room, you can imagine how I feel. And I'm a good person. I want you to reaffirm. I'm a good person. I'm a conscientious, conscientious person. So I don't want to, you know, make a mess of their niceness. And so I lived by the rule when I stayed at their house, leave no trace. So, you know, after I would get out of the shower, I would towel down the walls because I didn't want it to look like anybody had taken a shower there. I'd give full permission to, you know, do that, but I didn't want them to be burdened by my presence. And so then I would like fold the towel up really neatly and lay it in the, uh, you know, dirty hamper. No, I wouldn't throw it in because that's rude. I would fold it up nice and put it in so that even as they're doing my laundry, they are understanding, oh, Curtis, he's such a sweet person. He's such a conscientious person. He folded this up before I threw it into to the uh, you know, washing machine. I, I did everything that I could to not leave any trace that I was there. So much so that one time uh, the lady said to Amanda, listen, we love Curtis staying here so much, but will you please tell him to sleep under the covers next time? <laughs> the bed was made so perfectly. I, I knew if I got in it, I wouldn't actually be able to put it back the way it was, so I would just sleep on the top of it because it's easier to iron out the wrinkles on it than it is to remake it. Naturally, you know, I didn't feel at home there, even though that's what they wanted very much. I think many of us feel that way about the kingdom of God. We don't feel at home in the kingdom of God. Not because we're not welcome. I think you understand that you are welcomed into the kingdom of God. Jesus came to open the door so that you could come into the kingdom of God. I think most of us understand that we are welcome there. But it's just unfamiliar to us. Compared to where we live, it just doesn't feel like home. It feels something much different than home. So much so that I think it would take a while for you and I to remember, oh yeah, I actually live in another kingdom. But that's what Jesus came to do for us. And so he says... Your kingdom come. 61 separate times Jesus references the kingdom of God, which ranks it at the top of the things that he references or among the top of the things that he references. You'll see it two different ways. You'll see it referred to, especially in the Gospel of Matthew, as the kingdom of heaven, and then in some of the other Gospels as the kingdom of God. It's both things. It's one and the same kingdom of heaven, kingdom of of God and the kingdom is kind of hard to define. Jesus never gives us a place where he says this is the kingdom of God and then fully explains it. He leaves some room for mystery. And instead of just defining it for us, which if you are a black and white person, if you are a yes or no person, then that's what you would actually want. You would want a definition so that you can know this is the kingdom of God, this is not the kingdom of God. Instead of doing that for us in order to leave some room for mystery and the work of God, he just tells stories about the kingdom. He tells these parables to help us understand what the kingdom looks like, what it feels like, what it tastes like, how people act when they are inside of the kingdom. That's why you get Matthew chapter 13. You know, in Matthew chapter 13, there are a lot of parables. You can turn there and look at it uh, later, uh, some other point during the day. But in Matthew chapter 13, he tells a story about a, a sower who throws out seed. And some of the seed falls on the road. And some of the seed falls on the side. And some of the seed gets, you know, taken by the birds. Some of the seed gets choked out by thorns and, and other things. Some of the seed falls on fertile ground. And actually bears a lot of fruit. The point is that not everybody receives the message of the kingdom. 
I mean, that's going to be true this morning. I mean, we're talking about the kingdom of God, and some of us are just not going to get it. We're going to leave exactly the same way that we came. Some because our hearts are hard and we're just not in a place where we're ready to think about things like that or to yield ourselves to things like that. Some of us are just too busy. We've got a lot of burdens. We've got a lot of weights on us right now. and We don't have time to think about such things. Some of us, the enemy, Satan, is going to come and he's going to try to steal the word from us. And then others are going to receive the message of the kingdom. But not everybody does. Jesus also tells a parable of of the weeds, about a farmer who who sows good seed, brings forth wheat, but an enemy comes and he throws out bad seed that that brings uh, weeds. And the workers of the farm, they come to the farmer and they say, what do you want us to do? Do you want us to pull out the weeds? And the farmer says, no, if you pull out the weeds now, it's going to mess up the whole thing and we'll just wait till the harvest when we can tell a distinct difference. It means not everybody around us who says, Lord, Lord, about Jesus is really saying, Lord, Lord. At least not with their faith. They may be saying that with their mouth. Jesus also tells a story about the mustard seed. How the mustard seed is is one of the smallest of all the seeds. And when it goes into the ground, it goes in so unassumingly. But then it grows into a massive plant that can give shade. Meaning in the kingdom of God, some of the greatest work of God starts unnoticed. Uh, I was reading up about the Welsh Revival, which was a great revival of faith in Wales in the early 1900s. It had massive effect. It started with a young man named Evan Roberts. Evan Roberts was just a normal person. He wasn't a minister or anything like that. He was just a normal person. And and he, he got into the Word of God, and God was doing a real work in him, and he got all fiery and passionate, and he had a message for the teenagers of his, of his church. Now, they didn't have a big church, so he gathered up the teenagers, just a little handful of teenagers, and he brings them this message that had really been stirring in him. And here's the message. It has two points. One, God is real. I guess that's a good place to start, kind of simple. And your sins can be forgiven. Again, great news. Kind of simple. That was the totality of his message. Those two statements. God is real. Hello. And your sins can be forgiven. Within a year after preaching that message, over a million people were added to churches in Great Britain. If you had been in that room in the early 1900s, in that congregation in Wales, in this tiny church, not an influential church, not a big church, not the church, just this tiny little church in Wales, and you had been in that room and you had heard that very simple message, God is real and your sins can be forgiven, I doubt you would have expected what was to come after it. But in the kingdom of God, what goes in as a mustard seed can come out yielding massive results. So you don't know what your unassuming faithfulness can yield this week. You don't know what a simple invitation to church can mean for somebody, can mean for a family, can mean for a street, can mean for a neighborhood, can mean for a city. You don't know what it could mean to just reach your hand out and pray with somebody this week. Just an unassuming, simple obedience. But in the kingdom, it goes in like a mustard seed and it grows into something incredibly useful Incredibly powerful. He also talks about a parable of the leaven. The yeast goes into the flour and once the yeast is mixed in, it's mixed into the whole thing and you can't pick it out. That's why you can go to almost anywhere in the world right now and find the kingdom of God. 
you can find followers of Jesus, even in the hardest places. The hardest places in the world where it's most difficult to be a Christian, you will find followers of Jesus there because his kingdom is mixed in. It's everywhere. I remember uh, once I went to Africa, to Uganda, and we flew into the major city, Kampala, and we got on this, in this Jeep, and uh, they drove us out of the city hours and hours and hours until we were just in the middle of nowhere. You couldn't, you couldn't um, accidentally stumble upon this place. That's how in the middle of nowhere it was. And, and it's a Sunday morning, and they drive us to this big field. There's nothing there. There are a few buildings, but they're abandoned buildings. And, and we're like, what are we doing here? And they say, we're, we come to have church. And we're looking around. There's no church anywhere in sight. There are no people in sight, but I guess we're going to have church. And we're kind of looking at this person strange. And she's like, just wait for a while. And so we wait for about an hour. And pretty soon, these people just kind of start coming up this hill together for church. But again, no church building. You know where church was? It was literally under a tree. And they had a pastor, and they had worship, they had music, they had drums, they took an offering. It was a place that didn't have a lot of, uh, you know, financial uh, resource, and so they gave flowers in the offering. There, in the middle of nowhere, literally in the middle of the world, the kingdom of God was. It's mixed in. It's everywhere. Sometimes it's invisible to us, but it is there. Jesus tells the parable in Matthew chapter 13 of the treasure and the pearl of great price. You remember that? A man, he goes and he finds a treasure buried in a field, and he buries it back, and then he goes and he sells everything that he has so he can buy the field so he can have the treasure. The, tre- the kingdom is valuable. I mean, you may find yourself like the rich young ruler today who came to Jesus, this young, sophisticated, educated man, had a lot of resource behind him, And he wanted to know what it took to get into the kingdom of God. And so Jesus gave him some things to do. And he's like, I do all those things. And Jesus said, one thing you lack, sell everything you have, give it to the poor and follow me. And he couldn't. He couldn't. He loved his stuff. His stuff was too valuable to sell and to give away, to relinquish. And so he missed the kingdom of God because he missed Jesus because he loved his stuff. But the kingdom is valuable, and when it is revealed to you in any of its forms, abandon everything to get it. And he tells us the story, the parable of the net, which means, uh, which is a fisherman throwing his net into the, the ocean, into the sea, and pulling out all kinds of fish. And when they get back to the shore, Jesus said, they start separating the fish. See, right now, we may not be able to tell which kingdom you live in. Some people who are not believers act like believers. And some people who are believers act like they're not believers. And it may be hard to tell. But at the end, it will be known. And Jesus tells these stories so that we can get a feel for what the kingdom is. But still, he doesn't define it. But thankfully, he glues the next statement in Matthew chapter 6. He says, your kingdom come, your will be done. He glues those two statements together. Your kingdom come and your will be done. So if you want to know what the kingdom of God is, where the kingdom of God is, the kingdom is wherever God's will is done. Are you doing his will in your family? Then the kingdom is in your family. Are you doing his will at work? Then the kingdom of God is at work. Are you doing his will when you go hunting? Then the kingdom of God is hunting. Are you doing his will when you're golfing? Then the kingdom of God is golfing. Are you doing his will when you're hanging out with your kids? Then the kingdom of God is there when you're hanging out with the kids. Wherever 
God's will is done. That is the kingdom of God. Now, it's helpful for us to understand what Jesus' listeners are thinking when they hear him say, your kingdom come. What's going through their minds? So we want to do a little Jewish eschatology. That's a fancy theological word for how is the world going to end? And so the the listeners of Jesus that day in Matthew chapter 6, they have a very distinct uh, thinking, a a very distinct narrative of what's going to happen in the end. The first thing that was going to happen in their minds that that meant the kingdom of God had come, was that they were going to return from exile. Now, I've told you before, there are two E words that you really need to know to understand the Bible. The first one is the word exodus. Say that with me. Exodus. Good. And you remember that. Moses, burning bush, plagues, Egypt, slavery, out in the wilderness, uh, split the Red Sea. That's the exodus. The second E word is the word exile. Say that with me. Exile. Very good. Nobody's getting bored, right? Because we already talked about that. Second word is exile, and that's towards the end of the Old Testament. You remember, God comes to his people, and he says, you have to stop worshiping idols. 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 And they never do. So God turns them over to the consequences of that. Babylon comes and just destroys Jerusalem. And when it destroys Jerusalem, it takes off many of the Israelites back to Babylon, essentially as slaves. And they get there, and for generations, they're just stuck in Babylon. Eventually, they're allowed to return back to Israel, but they don't return back as a free people. They return back being ruled by Babylon, then by Persia, then by Greece. And then when Jesus is born, they're ruled by Rome. So even though they were back in their homeland, they never did think that they returned all the way from exile because they weren't a free people. And they knew the kingdom would come when they were a free people. And not only a free, free people, but that they were ruled by one of their own. They believed that uh, David, King David, his lineage, somebody from his lineage would, would be uh, placed as king over all of Israel. And when that happened, they knew that the kingdom was getting close. And then out of David's line, David's lineage, God would anoint the Messiah, a man who would come, rally the people, be anointed by God. And would usher in a new age of justice and peace. No longer the injustice of the Romans. No longer the injustice of the Greeks. But the justice of God and the peace of God. And then they believed that when all that happened. That all nations around the world would worship the God of Israel. The one true God. That they would acknowledge that he is God. And there is no other God. And then there would be a new heaven and new earth. So when Jesus says your kingdom come, they have that framework in their mind. So it makes sense to us why they missed Jesus if they were just looking for those very specific signs. There wasn't a return from exile in their minds because Rome was still in charge. Jesus didn't push out Rome. There was no king of Israel from David's line. There was no new age of justice and peace. And so they miss Jesus. But what do we see in the scripture? We see that Jesus, he is the answer to all those questions. He is the prophet and the priest and the king of the kingdom. He's the prophet of the kingdom. He goes around saying, hey, the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is at your doorstep. He's the priest of the kingdom. You don't get into the kingdom because you think it would be great. You don't get into the kingdom by acting like a citizen of the kingdom. You, you get into the kingdom 
if Jesus mediates peace between you and God, if he brokers peace between you and God, God is holy, we are sinners, we need somebody in the middle who can arrange a meeting, and that's what Jesus does. He's the priest of the kingdom, and he is the king of the kingdom. He's the king of every king, and he is the Lord of every Lord. And he says, your kingdom come, your will be done. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 21. Jesus says this in verse 28, another parable. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first, and he said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterwards he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? And they said, that's the Pharisees, that's the self-righteous religious leaders who are skeptical about Jesus being the one to bring the kingdom. They said the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you, that's John the Baptist, in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him, and even when you saw it, you did not afterwards change your minds and believe in him. So Jesus sets up this story. A father goes to his two sons. To his first son, he says, I I want you to go and work in the vineyard. And the son says, no way. I'm busy. I'm not doing that today. But then later on, he changes his mind and he goes and works in the field. The father goes to the second son. He says, I want you to go and work in the vineyard. The son says, absolutely, I'll go. I'm going right now. But he never goes. Jesus presents this question to these Pharisees. Which one of these sons did the will of his father? The answer is clearly the first one who actually went into the, will, uh, into the, the vineyard. Here is the application for us as we're talking about making ourselves at home in the kingdom. In the kingdom, intention has no value. Only action. I mean, if I just judge myself based on all the things that I intend to do, I am amazing. Listen, there's nobody more godly than me if I'm just judging based on all the things I want and desire and intend to do. But the kingdom of God is not based on intention. Listen, intention is not the same as faithfulness. And because we intend to do so many things, we end up talking about so many things. If I just judge myself based on how much I talk about Jesus and talk about all the things that I want to do or should do or need to do, then I'm pretty godly then too. So much talking. So much talking. Here's a test for us this morning. If you suddenly lost your ability to speak or communicate, how Christian would you be? Would anybody be able to tell that you live in the kingdom, because what does the scripture say in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 20, that the kingdom of God consists not in talk, but in power. Is there any power radiating off of your life that would let people know that you are in the kingdom of God? Listen, we use our words to talk over our indiscretions. We use our words to Christian up the gray areas in our lives. 
We use our words, our Jesus talk, to overinflate our godliness. But what if you lost your ability to speak and you, your words couldn't save you and your opinions couldn't save you and your cleverly crafted sentences couldn't save you? If you're just based on action, could anybody tell that you live in the kingdom? Because obedience is what is valued. That's why the first son does the will of the father. At first he says, no, thank you. I don't want to go. But he eventually goes. He actually gets into the vineyard and he's the son that's lifted up by Jesus. You know, most of us just stop at desiring to do the right thing. You know, most of our action and our intention, it never survives the parking lot. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but the the parking lot is like the black hole of lots of godliness. Because if you're anything like me, you know, I come in here, the curtain gets pulled back a little bit for me, and I'm like, yeah, Jesus, the name of Jesus, that's it. I feel happy here, I feel content here, I feel peaceful here, because the kingdom curtain is being pulled back for us, and it tastes good, and it looks good. And all the way out into the parking lot, it seems good. But then something happens between the parking lot and the street. Maybe you go to pick up your kids from the kids' ministry and there's a long line and you're frustrated because you're in a hurry. And then you get into the car and it's hot. Man, it's been hot. It's been baking out in the sun. Or maybe it's raining. And, uh, you know, right now, uh, I think it actually stopped. But, um, you know, and, and you're wet or you're hot and you're wet. And maybe you lock your keys in the car. Or, or, or maybe you're like, I thought you had the keys. No, you had the keys. And you're digging in your purse, digging in your, in your pockets. You can't find it. Then, like, where am I going to eat? Well, I want to go here. I want to go here. I want to go here. And, you, and you're already frustrated by the time you get out into the street. All that intention gets swallowed up by the parking lot. But it's obedience that is valued. You know, Jesus says this over and over again. He who has ears, what? Let him hear. He who has ears, let him hear. What is Jesus saying? If you have ears, then listen to what I'm saying. No, he's saying, if you can hear this, then hear this all the way down. Hear what I'm saying all the way through to action. That I'm saying this, and you would hear it in a way that something would happen. He who has ears, let him hear. And here's why we're talking about all this kingdom stuff. Here's why we're talking about being people of not just intention, but action. Because I believe with all of my heart that we are living in a new day. In this city, in this country, in this world, we are living in a new day. And I think you feel that. It feels much different to be a follower of Jesus today than it did even five years ago. This just feels different. And what we are feeling is we are feeling outnumbered. We were once, our parents were once, our grandparents were once, somebody once as Christians were an established majority. And I don't think I'm the first one to say it. I may be the first one to say it out loud. I think those days are gone. As hard as we try, we can't swing elections anymore. They don't consult the church when they make public policy. Nobody's thinking about Christians when they are making movies and they are marketing them to children. It's a new day. 
So it's going to require a new way for us to continue to have influence. Listen, we still will have influence, but it might not be in a large macro level, but where your influence will be found is right here in the people that you can see and the people that you can talk to and the people that can hear your voice and the people that can see the way you live. There is influence to have in this country, but it won't come as an established majority. It will come as a prophetic minority. It means that we can't think of ourselves as the CEOs, the rulers of, the legislators of morality in this country. It means that you and I need to go to work less like a buttoned up CEO and more like John the Baptist clothed in animal skins and eating wild locusts and honey. Some of you hunters just got into that. There is influence to to be had, but it's going to come from action and not from talking. There is influence to be had in this country, but it's going to come through hearing all the way to obedience and not just good intentions. Jesus is not impressed with your noble intentions. If there's no action, there's no change behind it. Our talk and intentions are not enough. We will see God's power through our obedience. And that's where we will have influence. You're not going to have influence in this country because you look like a good person. There are billions of good people on this planet. You will have influence in this city when the power of God is at work in you. You will have influence in your neighborhood Not when you have the neatest yard or seem the most righteous. But when there are unexplainable things about you and your family. You will have influence not when you look like everyone else. And then in the midst of looking like everyone else you go, oh by the way, we are followers of Jesus. And oh my, everyone's so impressed. No, you will have influence when people look at you and go, they're weird They're not like anybody else on this street, but man, their family has peace. Their home has peace. I like talking to them. I like being around them. There's something different about them. That is where our influence is as Christians moving forward in this city. It's not from getting up on some platform somewhere and saying, I'm a Christian, hear me roar. No, it's in the nitty gritty of life, face to face, voice to voice, when you are different but powerful. When you are different but whole. When you are different but pure. That's where influence is. That doesn't mean we shouldn't vote or step into situations when we can. We should. But if you want to see a tide turn in this city or in your home... or in this country, it is the power of God in your obedience. Because you never know, it's a mustard seed, what some unassuming, unnoticed faithfulness from you might yield 
five years, 10 years, 15 years down the road. So here's how we're gonna end today. We're gonna pray, and we do that every week, but I wanna pray specifically. We're gonna pray in circles, and we're gonna start big, and we're gonna get small. We're gonna pray for our country. We're gonna pray Jesus' prayer, your kingdom come. The kingdom of God is here. It's mixed in everywhere. It's like the yeast in the flour. But what we're praying is that the curtain would be pulled back so that people could see into the kingdom of God. And what the church is, we're the people on the side of the stage pulling that rope. That's what it means to be the church. We're the agents of the kingdom. We're not on display. We're the ones pulling the rope, pulling back the curtain so people can see into the kingdom. We're going to pray for our country. Then we're going to pray for our city, this amazing city that we live in, Houston, Texas, fourth largest city in the world, a beacon of economic resource and wealth, people coming from all over the planet to come be here. It's also a city that has incredible darkness. We're going to pray for the kingdom to come in our city. We're going to pray for the kingdom to come in your neighborhood, in your pocket of, of this city, uh, on your street. It doesn't mean that as you go out and are faithful that everybody's going to respond. We invited our friends to church one too many times and they're freezing us out right now. And that's fine. We're going to keep being good neighbors, keep being friendly, and maybe one day earn the ability to invite them one more time. I'm going to pray that the kingdom of God would come to our street and your street and our neighborhood and your neighborhood. And then we're going to pray that the kingdom would come to our family in your home, whether your home is filled with a couple single folks or mom and dad with kids or mom and dad, kids flown the coop, that the kingdom would be in your home. Men, I'm looking at you right now. I read a statistic not too long ago that said when the woman, the mama of the house is the Christ follower and the initiator of that and the the one who holds that faith together in the home, 30% of the time, the rest of the family will follow. And if you are that, uh, ladies, and, and you are the spiritual pace setter in your homes, man, keep doing it. Keep doing it. Do not go, get, give up. Do not grow weary in doing good. You keep being faithful. You keep doing the right thing. You keep loving your husband. You keep loving your kids. You keep talking about Jesus. You keep it up. But men, the second half of that statistic that I read was that when you help set the pace in your home for Jesus, 80% of the time, the whole family follows. You have a tremendous amount of influence in your home, men, just by the fact that you are a man. And I think God has given it to you. So especially men, let's pray for revivals of faith in our home, that the kingdom would come in our home. And then lastly, I want you to pray for yourself that the kingdom would come in your life, that you would feel at home in the kingdom. So let's just take a second, just in just a few minutes, could you pray through those circles? You start with our country and whatever prayer of faith is stirred in you, just in, a, just in two minutes, you just work your way through those.
Father, we pray you would answer these prayers. We don't, we're not inventing prayers today. We're just praying the prayers of Jesus. Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come to the United States of America. Your kingdom come to Houston, Texas. Your kingdom come to our neighborhoods. Your kingdom come to our homes. And your kingdom come to our lives. In Jesus' name.